the military has taken has not even taken basic steps to check their own assumptions from that night. An NPR investigation finds flaws in the Pentagon claim that civilians were not killed in a 2019 raid on the founder of ISIS. It's Thursday, July 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, NPR now has documents that reveal flaws in the Pentagon's claim. Also ahead, the biggest source of climate warming methane in the U.S. is animal agriculture. America's biggest cattle feedlot operator is funding new research with motives beyond reducing greenhouse gases. And we have a review of the historical thriller Oppenheimer. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Over 100 million people in the U.S. are facing an oppressive heat wave stretching from Southern California to Miami. The National Weather Service says this will linger through the weekend in the Deep South and Southeast and into the coming week in the Southwest. Behind it, as NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports, is an El Nino weather pattern that forecasters say is likely to continue into early 2024, and that means hotter than average temperatures. The cyclic climate pattern called El Nino is warming up the water in the Pacific Ocean. That extra heat affects the whole planet and has helped drive record-breaking hot weather in the U.S. this summer. Nearly 400 daily maximum temperature records fell in the southern U.S. in June and early July, mostly in Texas. Now, forecasters say there is a more than 90 percent chance that El Nino conditions will continue into early 2024. That makes it more likely that more heat records will be broken. It also means hot, dry weather is forecast for the western U.S. in the coming months, and hot, rainy weather in much of the eastern U.S. El Nino exacerbates the long-term warming of human-caused climate change. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. In Philadelphia today, President Biden offered prayers for two little siblings lost in a sudden deluge several days ago in nearby Bucks County. We're grateful for all the first responders. Continue to look for a two-year-old Maddie and her, her, her baby brother Conrad. By the grace of God, maybe something will come of it. The president visited the Philadelphia shipyard to promote his administration's bipartisan infrastructure initiative, but he says Washington needs to step up and do more. We need to have the best infrastructure in the world if we're going to lead the world. We used to be number one. We now rank number 13 in the world. Courting organized labor, the president declared that unions will get it done. The State Department says it's worried about a U.S. soldier who ran into North Korea, but there's still no word on Travis King. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The U.S. has been sending messages to North Korea, making clear that Private Travis King crossed on his own volition and the U.S. wants him back. But spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. still doesn't know if he's okay. There are concerns about how he might be treated. Given the treatment by North Koreans of past detained individuals, we would have that concern. Uh, and that's why, one of the reasons why we are reaching out to ask for more information about his well-being. King was due to fly home from South Korea to face discipline action. He was last seen in civilian clothes in a tour group at the demilitarized zone where he crossed into North Korea. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. 
On Wall Street at the close, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 163 points. The Nasdaq closed down 294. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The chancellor of the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, is announcing a plan to cut staff and reorganize the school. In a video message to staff, Chancellor Julie Chen said, like other institutions of higher learning, UMass Lowell's financial future looks bleak. Slicing budgets thinner and thinner each year is not a sustainable solution against inflation, increased costs for employee salaries and benefits, the end of federal pandemic funds, and the shrinking number of high school graduates. Chen says major changes are necessary to keep the school viable. She's starting with a voluntary buyout program for employees. UMass Lowell is also putting a hold on new non-strategic hires. Chen also indicates the school is looking to eliminate and reduce its office footprint. UMass Boston and Mass General Brigham are expanding their recruitment program for nurses. Each organization is investing $10 million to increase the pipeline of nursing students by 400 over the next five years. Rosemary Sheehan is Chief of Human Resources at Mass General Brigham. She says UMass Boston is the most diverse university in New England, and this program helps students in underrepresented communities. The bulk of the money is actually tuition support to really help these students stay with the program and continue on to their dream of becoming a nurse. Sheehan says another goal is to increase the diversity of the nursing staff throughout the Mass General Brigham system. More than 100 farms and other organizations are getting $26 million in grants to help fight food insecurity in Massachusetts. The recipients are part of the state's Food Security Infrastructure Grant Program, which was started to fight food insecurity during the pandemic. Officials believe recent flooding in central and western Massachusetts could worsen the problem of food insecurity in the state. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 67 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The highs around 78. Weekend looks promising, mostly sunny on Saturday. The highs around 85. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation. Presenting Lucinda Williams and her band live at the Orpheum, Saturday, October 21st. Tickets available at LiveNation.com. And the estate of Joan B. Croc whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Elsa Chang in Washington. What really happened in Syria the night of October 26, 2019? Well, the U.S. military tells one version, a daring and successful U.S. raid against the founder of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The U.S. said its troops killed no civilians in that raid. This raid was impeccable. Then-President Donald Trump praised the operation. And here's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Our forces isolated the compound and protected all the non-combatants. Syrians tell another story about that night, that U.S. airstrikes actually did kill and maim civilians. NPR reported those claims back in 2019. The Pentagon reviewed the claims and rejected them. So we sued the Pentagon for a copy of its confidential review. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports there are flaws in the Pentagon's conclusions. And a warning, this report includes some graphic details. It was nighttime, and Barakat Ahmad Barakat says his two friends were giving him a ride home after work at an olive oil press. 
There was nothing suspicious at all. We kept moving normally. There was nothing ahead of us on the road. Suddenly, I felt something hit us. Airstrikes targeted their van. As it turned out, they were approaching the hideout of ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, just as U.S. forces were raiding it. My friend was wounded all over his body and fell over onto the dashboard. Do a Google image search of Baghdadi and car, and you'll see photos of their mangled van seen around the world. There's footage of uh, a white van that was riddled with bullets that was right next to the scene. A journalist asked about this in a press conference after the raid. Here's what General Kenneth McKenzie, who oversaw the operation, said. So the white van that you talk about was one of the vehicles that displayed hostile intent, came to us, and it was destroyed. The men fled the van. Barakat says he carried his wounded friend across his chest and reached the side of the road when they were targeted with more airstrikes. I was so terrified that I didn't understand what exactly was striking us or what was happening. That's Barakat speaking this month at the very spot where this happened in 2019. AFP's Omar Haj Qadur filmed him for NPR. In the airstrikes, Barakat's two friends were killed, and his right hand was blown off. Cell phone video that surfaced after the attack shows a destroyed van, two pockmarked bodies, and a severed hand. NPR learned about this account at the time of the raid and brought these claims to the Pentagon that Syrian civilians were targeted in U.S. airstrikes. The Pentagon launched a confidential review of the incident and told us the airstrikes were necessary. It said the men were enemy combatants who threatened forces because they didn't stop their car when troops fired warning shots. But Barakat told us he didn't recall any warning shots. I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to escape death. NPR sued the Pentagon to release its confidential review under the Freedom of Information Act. And the Pentagon released a redacted copy. We showed it to experts, including Larry Lewis from the federally funded Center for Naval Analyses. He's advised the military on how to reduce civilian casualties. And he thinks the military got it wrong here. When I read it, and this is based on reading literally thousands of these cases, it seems very familiar. There are civilians going about their daily lives, and then they suddenly encounter a military force unexpectedly. The report redacts what kind of aircraft carried out the airstrikes, but military officials have said attack helicopters were used in the operation. Here's the timeline, according to the Pentagon report. First, there were combatants who opened fire on U.S. troops, and the troops fired back. Then Barakat's van passed through that spot and drove in the direction of ground troops further down the road. The report says a U.S. aircraft fired warning shots about 50 feet in front of the van, but the van kept going, so the aircraft targeted it directly. This is the core of the Pentagon's claim. The van demonstrated hostile intent because it didn't stop or alter course following warning shots. But NPR's investigation found there was hardly any time to respond between the warning shots and the airstrike on the van. Here's how we reached that conclusion. The aerial photos in the report show that the aircraft struck the van in the same place it fired the warning shots. Looking at the photos, the van had only traveled about 50 feet, or maybe as much as 70. Barakat says they were going slowly. So say as an estimate, the van was traveling just 15 miles an hour. They only had two or three seconds before the van was hit. Lewis says all this would have been a blur to someone driving in the dark. Tragically, what happens too often is that 
the military does not effectively communicate what it really wants. They want the van to stop. But what do they use? They use lethal force. So you get this escalation based on misunderstandings. Here's another claim. The military report says after the airstrikes hit the van, the pilot thought there were explosions from the van, which could mean it was carrying explosives or weapons, and the pilot fired a rocket at the men as they fled. But the report says looking back, the Pentagon could not confirm what caused the explosions. There's no record the Pentagon contacted the airstrike survivor. Barakat says they never did. Larry Lewis again. Military forces see a vehicle or an individual. They believe it is hostile, it's a threat, but they're mistaken that it's actually civilian. And we, we call that misidentification. That's how I would characterize what, what is happening here. One of the Pentagon documents says something curious. It says, given the high visibility of this strike and allegation, it recommends the military provide a top secret document that, quote, further addresses the characterization of the individuals killed and injured as unlawful enemy belligerents, if the existing intelligence so supports. I asked Lewis, what does the author mean by this? It does indicate kind of this question in the person that was writing this, like, you know, why are we so insistent that these people that we use force on, what is the real evidence that they were in fact combatants? that they weren't civilians that were caught in in the wrong place at the wrong time. We asked the Pentagon. It said there is no record officials ever compiled any top secret document. So the Pentagon didn't provide the intelligence to support its own conclusion. We showed the Pentagon report to former Defense Department Special Counsel Ryan Goodman. There are several red flags that raise concerns. The analysis in these documents conflates or muddles an assessment of the decision-making at the time under the fog of war versus the post-strike analysis that they may have gotten it wrong. In other words, it's one thing to say that troops acted reasonably in the heat of the moment. They saw a van approaching, decided in a matter of seconds that it was hostile, and fired on it. But it's another thing for the Pentagon to look at this months later and still rely on the initial judgment troops made during the fog of war. One, that there were combatants in the area, even though the van did not open fire. And two, that the van ignored the Army's warning shots, even though we know those shots provided the van little time to react. In response to NPR's findings, U.S. Central Command spokesman Major John Moore said there was no formal investigation into the incident because the Pentagon found the allegations that U.S. troops killed civilians to be not credible, and it had no plans to reassess the allegations and, quote, nothing additional to offer. I brought all this to Barakat, whose hand was blown off in the strike. He's had surgery to remove shrapnel from his other hand. He says he can hold things again. But he cannot afford his $8 physical therapy sessions, and can't find work to provide enough food for his five young children. He's 39 now. He wants compensation. My future is destroyed. I have a family, kids. How is this their fault? Last year, the Defense Department introduced a new action plan to mitigate civilian casualties. And a U.S.-based nonprofit has taken up Barakat's case. 
the Zomia Center, which advocates for civilian victims of military strikes. Joanna Naples Mitchell directs the group's redress program and wants the Defense Department to take a fresh look at this case. She's collected documentation showing what Barakat was doing in the area, receipts from his work at a nearby olive oil press. The big takeaway from this is that two men are dead, Barakat is severely disabled, the military owes him a lot more. They owe him a real explanation for what happened to him because the military has not even taken basic steps to check their own assumptions from that night. She's requesting Barakat's case be reopened. And last month, after NPR inquired with the Pentagon, she says the Pentagon told her it's looking into the request. So the official U.S. narrative about civilian casualties in the raid against the head of ISIS may not be case closed. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. And you can see some of the Pentagon documents, photos of the survivor, and maps and video of the route he took. We'll post all of that tomorrow on NPR.org in English and Arabic. Twenty years ago, a long-shot horse shocked the thoroughbred racing world by winning two races at the sport's Triple Crown. And it's all because a group of friends in northern New York was bored. We were just sitting around having a couple of cocktails, as we're often doing, and the idea came up to buy a horse. And from that day forward, our life has changed. The story of Funny Side on the next morning edition. Listen on the radio, online, or try asking your smart speaker to play your local NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, for young Republican conservatives invested in the party, Trump's drama, legal and otherwise, hasn't diminished their support. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow was up about a half a percent at 35 to 25. NASDAQ was down 2% at 14,036, and the S&P 500 was down 7 tenths of a percent at 45.28. In local business news, Governor Mara Healey says a lot of farms in western Massachusetts may not be eligible for federal disaster relief. Today, she announced the creation of a relief fund to help farmers whose crops were devastated by extensive flooding. Healy says the state is still looking to Washington for help, but private donations can get to farmers faster. We've got at least 75 farms who, you know, have incurred at least 15, 20 million dollars worth of damage. And it's appropriate for people across Massachusetts to step up and find ways to support the people who feed our families. The state is partnering with the United Way to raise money. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
A growing number of states is struggling with extreme heat and flooding this week. The very present impact of climate change and the search for solutions is leading the news today on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 66 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Amelia Fox returns to solve murders in this forensic crime drama where every dead body tells a story. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. The agriculture industry has generally been hostile towards addressing human-caused climate change. But now it's partnering with a research project in Colorado that's aimed at reining in methane, which is a type of climate warming pollution. KUNC's Ray Solomon reports. At first glance, the livestock pens at Colorado State University's AgNext program are a lot like your standard cattle feedlot. There are cows, plenty of mud underfoot, and of course, the ever-present stench. But this operation isn't just a feedlot. It's a scientific laboratory where researchers are learning about the greenhouse gases cows produce as they stand around digesting food. It's tricked out with millions of dollars of equipment, like this green feed contraption, a kind of high-tech gumball machine dispensing tasty cow treats. There's an animal in there right now. He's got his head stuck in the machine, and he's chowing down a little bit of a snack. Sarah Place is the animal sciences professor who oversees the work. Despite what you may have heard, most methane comes out of the cow's front end, not the rear. So each time an animal gets a snack, it's an opportunity for Place to get information. The air gets pulled from around the animal's face, and whatever they're respiring out goes directly into the machine, and we can get real-time methane emissions data from that. Climate experts warn we're running out of time to cut greenhouse gases, like the methane these cows exhale as they digest, which is what this research is all about. We want to find solutions that can help mitigate those emissions to cut the climate impact of beef. But so far, less than 2% of federal funding for research into climate mitigation in agriculture supports this type of work. So scientists have forged an unlikely partnership in their efforts to clean up the cattle industry. We can feed at one time about 900,000 head of cattle. Tom McDonald is with Five Rivers Cattle Feeding, the world's biggest feedlot operation. Cows come to them to get fattened up before slaughter. With 13 of those feedlots across six western states, Five Rivers is the picture of industrial animal agriculture. And yet, when the climate researchers came calling, they were interested. One of the biggest expenses for a research institution like that is just owning the cattle. And so we help them by providing cattle for their research, feed for their research. They also donated equipment to the tune of $600,000. The whole goal here is to learn what our greenhouse gas footprint is and then how can we improve it. But if anyone doubts the sincerity of the cattle industry's interest in climate action, McDonald points out the donations aren't entirely altruistic. They expect a great return on that investment. When you're in the cattle feeding business, after all, methane isn't just a greenhouse gas. 
Methane is energy. Methane emissions are calories lost to the atmosphere, calories that could stick to a cow's ribs and become beef. So if the company can cut down on the methane a cow exhales, they'll ultimately have more product to sell. The cattle feeding industry is about efficiency. From a cattle performance standpoint, we utilize the tools available to help the cattle grow faster, gain faster. McDonald calls it a win-win for the environment and industry. But for all the cooperation, the research is still very young, which Ben Lilliston says is a problem given the urgency of human-caused climate change. Speculative technologies, you know, it's not to say that they're not worth exploring, but would not rely on them as a real climate mitigation strategy. Lilliston is with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a think tank in the climate and ag space. And he says there's a more immediate solution. Raise fewer cows. Reducing the cattle herd is the clearest way to reduce actual emissions. That would mean less meat and dairy on the market. For researchers like Sarah Place, that's not workable. At the end of the day, we want to make sure we create practical solutions that can be adopted in the real world. After all, people like to eat beef. And it just might be easier to tinker with the inner workings of an animal's gut than it is to change the cravings of a hungry planet. For NPR News, I'm Ray Solomon. In his last film, Tenet, director Christopher Nolan told a story that shredded the laws of physics. His new biographical thriller, Oppenheimer, is about one of the makers of those laws, theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. Critic Bob Mandelo says the film is a monument to science and to arrogance. J. Robert Oppenheimer is often referred to as the father of the atomic bomb. It was not, from all accounts, an easy birth. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But I know the Nazis can't. The film introduces us to Oppenheimer the charismatic scientist heading the Manhattan Project in the mid-1940s, but also in time-bending sequences that pulse and shudder, sometimes in black and white, to Oppenheimer the troubled student, Oppenheimer the Jewish outsider, Oppenheimer the lover, the husband, the idealist who assumes he can save humanity, and the hotshot for whom the creation of a weapon that could destroy humanity is at first just a matter of logistics. All America's industrial might itself scientific innovation connected here. Los Alamos. Secret laboratory. New Mexico. Keep everyone there until it's done. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Placed in charge at Los Alamos, despite official concerns about his possible communist sympathies, Oppenheimer is the glue that holds his scientific team together, and actor Killian Murphy, who plays him with feverish intensity, is the glue that binds the film's narrative threads, his thoughts punctuated by writer-director Christopher Nolan with fiery particles and sinuous waveforms, as if his very ideas are skittering across the screen. Hans just mentioned other nuclei. Criticality, point of no return, massive explosive force. But this time, the chain reaction doesn't stop. It would ignite the atmosphere. This notion is what first sparked Nolan's interest in the story, the idea that scientists, unsure whether a nuclear explosion might set the atmosphere on fire, went ahead with the explosion. He lets Matt Damon's General Groves ponder that on the eve of the test they'd codenamed Trinity. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Nothing in our research over three years supports that conclusion, except it's the most remote possibility. How remote? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. That their big bang, and Nolan makes it very big, shooting with IMAX 
Kodak 65mm cameras did not ignite the atmosphere doesn't make it any less horrifying. The film doesn't show the subsequent bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the weight of those world-altering tragedies sits like a shroud on its final third, which is consumed with Oppenheimer's tortured conscience and his fevered attempts to fend off reputational attacks and spark interest in disarmament talks as the world rushes headlong into the nuclear age. What do we know? One of our B-29s over the North Pacific has detected radiation. It's an atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but... What were you guys doing at Los Alamos? Wasn't security tight? A prickly atomic energy commissioner, played by Robert Downey Jr., is among the many familiar faces Nolan enlists to bring historical figures to life. Emily Blunt, Kenneth Branagh, Rami Malek, Florence Pugh, Casey Affleck, Gary Oldman, each a vivid flash of lightning in a film that burns nuclear with the anguish of hindsight. They won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Well, we've used it. Will we ever understand it? Maybe a little in Nolan's majestic Oppenheimer. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. 79 degrees in Boston at 429. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Cambodians will vote on, in an election on Sunday that will be neither fair nor free, but will extend a 38-year-long rule of Hun Sen and likely ensure his succession of his son. That's ahead in about 20 minutes here on WBUR. A growing number of states are struggling with extreme heat and flooding this week. The very present impact of climate change and the search for solutions is leading the news today on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening every day. It'll be a nice night tonight. Some increasing clouds. The lows around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox. Presenting August Wilson's Fences, starring Ella Joyce, July 22nd through August 27th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Brazilian soccer star Marta has won worldwide acclaim. She's not only talented, brilliant player, the best we've ever had, but... Also, she has been such an important voice in the women's game. She's brought home just about every prize soccer offers, except one. The Queen of Soccer's hunt for a World Cup trophy. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A new set of standards for teaching black history in Florida schools is getting pushback from critics who are calling the guidelines, quote, whitewashing. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Daniel Pryor reports. The Florida Board of Education calls the new African-American history standards it approved this week comprehensive. But Democratic Representative Ana Escamani says she and teachers and civil rights groups are deeply concerned by how the new standards represent slavery. Especially some of the notion that, you know, enslaved people benefited from being enslaved um, is an accurate and a scary standard for us to establish in our educational curriculum. The board says the standards don't refer to slavery as beneficial, but benchmark SS.7 
1868.AA.2.3 requires students to learn about how, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. The European Union is considering how to increase the pressure on Russia to stop bombing Ukrainian ports and blocking grain exports there. From Brussels, Terry Schultz tells us some EU governments are seeking alternatives after Russia pulled out of an agreement to allow safe passage of the grain. Convening a meeting of EU foreign ministers, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell called the Russian attacks on Odessa proof of a barbaric attitude in Moscow. This is going to create a big, a huge food crisis in the world if this grain is not only stuck but destroyed. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock calls Russia's threats to target ships in the Black Sea an attack on the international order. She says Ukrainian grain must not rot in silos instead of being used to feed people and is urging the EU to help find other ways to ship the stockpile out of Ukraine, possibly by rail. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today, the Dow up about half a percent. This is NPR. Shocking images have surfaced in India, showing horrific violence in a state where ethnic clashes have led to more than 130 deaths since early May. As Shushmita Patak tells us, the latest video contains disturbing scenes of an assault against women. The video shows two women being groped and paraded naked by a mob of men. The women say they were also raped. The incident took place in May in the state of Manipur in India's northeast, where two ethnic communities have been fighting. Police have confirmed the incident took place and have made arrests. The victims belong to the minority Kuki group, whereas the perpetrators are from the majority Maiti community. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has called the video shameful. He said the culprits will not be spared. It's the first time Modi has made public comments about the ongoing violence in Manipur, which has forced tens of thousands of people to flee their homes. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. On Capitol Hill, a bipartisan group of senators is proposing new oversight rules for college sports and the NCAA. The bill would preempt state laws and create national regulations for name, image, and likeness compensation for players. College sports leaders have been urging Congress to regulate how athletes can earn money off their name even before the NCAA lifted its compensation ban for student-athletes to earn money two years ago. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A new state budget is three weeks overdue, and there's no indication of when lawmakers will come to an agreement. Both the House and Senate have adjourned for the weekend without striking a deal. The co-chairs of the committee trying to iron out a final budget are not saying what they are stuck on. The state is operating under a temporary budget that will expire at the end of the month. Federal officials are asking people to be on the lookout for stranded sea turtles along the Massachusetts coast. Kate Sampson is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says there are many reasons why sea turtles strand. Some are natural and some are not. Unfortunately, a lot of them are involved with human interactions. So they could be things like boats that unfortunately don't see a turtle until it's too late and they strike it. We do also have entanglements and all sorts of gear. Beachgoers are asked to report any sea turtles on the beach. Boaters are asked to report any distressed, entangled, or dead sea turtles in the ocean. Sampson says only experts should free any entangled turtles. 
A popular swimming spot in Worcester is finally open for the summer. Bell Pond Beach has not been open because of a lack of lifeguards. The city says there will now be lifeguards on duty from noon to 7, Thursdays through Sundays. Increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 66 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The highs around 79. Partly sunny on Saturday. Chance of showers and thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. The high 82. It's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. This week, Wesleyan University announced it will end its practice of legacy admissions, which gives preference to children of alumni. Legacy students are more likely to be white and wealthy. This comes in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to ban race-conscious college admissions. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney has been following all this. Hey, Alyssa. Hello. What more can you tell us about Wesleyan's announcement? So starting in the fall, there will no longer be a bump in the selection process for applicants whose family members went to Wesleyan, which is a private liberal arts college in Connecticut. I talked with Michael Roth about this. He's Wesleyan's president, and and he talked about how legacy was not in line with their diversity efforts. I want to talk about the fact that we're recruiting students from rural America, that we're recruiting veterans, that we've created an African scholars program. But if we were doing those things and retained this unearned advantage through legacy, I feared that we would never really get to talk about those other things. He says legacy only played a negligible role in the college admissions process there, but students with family connections make up about 5% of incoming classes. Yet at other elite institutions, legacy plays a much bigger role in helping students gain admissions. Take Yale University, which is just a 30-minute drive down the road. Their latest freshman class is 12% legacy. Well, let's talk about the timing of this, Alyssa. Um, Is this happening in direct response to the Supreme Court's uh, affirmative action decision? Yeah, it is. Roth told me it was something that he'd been thinking about doing for several years. But then the Supreme Court issued their decision. Plus, there was this growing pressure on selective colleges to end the practice. So Roth and the college decided to get rid of it. And the big worry that I keep hearing from college presidents and admissions leaders is that students who come from underrepresented backgrounds, black students, native students, they just won't apply to selective schools because they're nervous about how the court's decision is going to impact their ability to get in. And so colleges, including Wesleyan, are trying to signal to prospective students they want diversity. Well, Wesleyan is not the first college to do this. Um, How has dropping legacy admissions affected other schools? So during the pandemic, Amherst College, a small elite school in Massachusetts, also stopped using legacy. It came after two years of planning. Here's Matt McGann, the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at Amherst, offering a rare behind-the-scenes look at the process. In the past, uh, admission officers would see a flag on the applicant's cover page uh, indicating that a student was a legacy and that that student should be provided additional consideration. We removed that flag after this policy change. 
So instead, these students now go through the our process just like every other applicant. Now, before the change, the freshman class there had 11% legacy, and after, it dropped to 6%. So students with the family history at the university still got in after the change, but they did so on their own merits. The college is still waiting to see how this change has impacted alumni giving. So let's talk about that, because alumni giving, alumni donations are a big deal, and that really is sort of the main reason colleges keep their legacy admissions programs. Money is certainly a big reason. I mean, most college presidents, their main job is to raise it. And there has been some research that shows that alumni give more money around the time their children are applying to college. Of course, multi-generation attendance can establish a strong familial connection to a place, which could lead to donating more. So is Wesleyan, with its decision, worried um, about a drop in alumni giving? Well, I asked Michael Roth, the president, that question. Is it harder to ask someone for support if you've rejected their daughter or granddaughter? You betcha. (laughs) (laughs) He says he knows that for some alums, legacy is an important issue. But he also thinks alumni will see the value in this change as a way to level the playing field. I'm betting on the idea And I wouldn't have made this decision if I thought it would seriously hurt the university's uh, economic foundation. That was Wesleyan's president, Michael Roth. He spoke with NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny, who covers colleges and universities. Thanks, Alyssa. Thank you. The U.S. women's national soccer team plays its first World Cup match against Vietnam in New Zealand on Friday. That game will kick off a quest for something never achieved in either women's or men's World Cup soccer history, a third straight championship. It will be up to coach Vlako Andonovsky to lead them. Greg Eklund has more on the coach with the tall task. 46-year-old Vlatko Andonovsky is a naturalized U.S. citizen who settled in Kansas City in the early 2000s after coming from North Macedonia to play indoor professional soccer. When he arrived in the U.S., his soccer coach at the time, Zoran Savic, had similar Eastern European roots. I think I'm one of the last ones that I, if somebody asked me where you're from, I said, well, I'm from former Yugoslavia. And what is that? I said, well, one time we had one country, now we have seven. Zavich says he's not surprised to see Androdowski coaching the U.S. team in the Women's World Cup. First of all, because he, the type of person he is, the type of integrity he has, the work ethics that he has, the thirst for knowledge that he has, and the pursuit of success that he has. In addition to Andonovsky's diligent preparation, he's known for being direct and frank with his players. Defender Sofia Huerta, one of 14 newcomers on this year's World Cup team, says she likes knowing where she stands. He definitely has been vocal with me with what I'm good at, why I'm on the team, and what I need to improve. And so, you know, he's laid that out for me very specifically. Andonovsky says he's approaching this tournament with a singular focus. Our goal is to win the World Cup. There's no question about it. And uh, I don't think that anyone on our team thinks anything different. To reach this point, there have been some bumps along the way. Andonovsky succeeded Jill Ellis after the 2019 World Cup. He's been molding a team in transition from seasoned veterans to younger players with less experience. Even so, he says he's not going to dwell on their growing pains. When we talk about being honest, being transparent and um, communicate with them, it never goes with what they don't do well. There's always, how do we fix this? An example of that took place in Denver last summer as a tune-up against Colombia prior to the World Cup qualifying tournament. 
Lindsey Horan, thrust into a leadership role as co-captain of this year's World Cup team, was stopped on a penalty kick. It was not one, but two missed opportunities by the U.S. on penalty kicks in that contest, even though the U.S. still won the match. Afterward, Andonovsky avoided criticism of his players. A penalty kick, uh, probably the best goal-scoring opportunity that you can have as a team, but that's part of the game. And uh, to give credit to the goalkeeper, I thought that she did a great job. Ever since his women's professional coaching career began in 2013 in the National Women's Soccer League, Andonovsky proved that success can also come with, as his players have said, simply being a nice guy. Huerta cites one instance when she recalls being told of making the World Cup roster. There was a FaceTime and I just wasn't expecting that at all. So it was a very funny interaction between us specifically in that moment. I was like, are you FaceTiming me right now? But no, he's amazing and um, I'm so thankful that he gave me this opportunity. Now with Latko Andonovsky at the helm, the U.S. women's team has an opportunity to make history in its sport. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Despite the 2024 election being 15 months away, some Republicans already know where they stand. That happened during an event hosted by Turning Point Action, a group focused on engaging young conservative activists. And unlike young Democrats who are lukewarm on President Biden, these young Republicans are feeling pretty good about former President Donald Trump. NPR's Elena Moore reports. 18-year-old Maya Conrad stands in the back of a packed ballroom. Trump is about to take the stage. I'm obviously super excited. She's a new voter, but ahead of 2024, her mind is already made up. I've been a fan of him ever since 2016 when I was 12 years old, so OG Trump fan. I love all the other candidates. I think it's a really solid lineup, but I'm very loyal to the MAGA movement. Conrad is one of more than 2,500 students attending a recent conference for young conservatives in West Palm Beach, Florida. Trump all the way. I'm on that Trump train. That's 23-year-old Austin Nellius. He's a cabinet maker from Pennsylvania who also does political podcasting. To him and many others here, Trump is the clear answer. But what about the candidate running second to Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? And I feel like conservatives would have been more in favor of supporting him in 28. But now that he went in the race against Trump, I feel like his chances are shot for the long haul. And the Trump-DeSantis rivalry came up a lot. But to student Megan Ramon, that kind of party infighting turns her off. The Republican Party as a whole is like so divided and like really our ultimate goal should be about winning. When it comes to winning, the primary is just the first step. Eventually, it could just be another Biden-Trump rematch. Which brings up the topic of age. At 80 years old, President Biden is the oldest president ever elected. But Trump is only three years younger and held the same title before Biden did. Plus, despite Biden's low approval with young voters, Americans under 30 have overwhelmingly voted with Democrats. So Republicans have their work cut out for them, especially as far-right leaders continue to take stances on social issues that don't resonate with a lot of Gen Z and younger millennials. 
Look, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun. That's student attendee Blaine Hibbert. He says Republicans can't lose sight of what brings in undecided voters. So pocketbook issues, the economy, gas prices, all that jazz. That's where you have to, we have to run on these fiscal conservative issues that the left is just not with us on. But for some young conservative voters, like student Sierra Becker, it's much less about policy and much more about personality. If Trump's in the Republican Party, that's who I'm voting for. If he's in the Democratic Party, I'd be voting for him there. It's really a, I like Donald Trump, not necessarily I am a Republican or Democrat. But as the primary season heats up, Trump's road to the White House is already rocky. This year, he's been indicted once on state and once on federal charges. Now he's likely about to be indicted a third time, related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. They're not coming after me, they're coming after you, and I just happen to be standing in their way, and I will never be moving. To 23-year-old Haley Berlin, who was torn between Trump and DeSantis, the investigations make her like Trump more. It kind of like fueled my fury, and I was not really thinking about um, voting for him, but then now I do. So at least for young conservatives invested in the party, Trump's drama, legal and otherwise, isn't going to diminish their support. Elena Moore, NPR News, West Palm Beach, Florida. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 79 degrees in Boston at 449. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, closing arguments are expected tomorrow in a trial against extremist Amon Bundy. Idaho's largest hospital sued him for $7.5 million after armed protests he led prompted a major security response. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Zevin Asset Management. Building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Join the Radio Boston team on Wednesday, August 2nd at City Space for an evening exploring comic book culture. Meet local cartoonists, see their work, and take home some comic creations. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The Red Sox have the day off today. They'll return to Fenway tomorrow night to take on the Mets in interleague play. Increase in clouds tonight, the lows around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers, the highs around 79. Partly sunny on Saturday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. The high is around 82 degrees, sunny and 85 degrees on Sunday. It's 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. What happens in the brain when you pray? When they have that sense of oneness, that sense of connectedness, we see decreases of activity in the parietal lobe, which is helping us to create our spatial representation of ourselves. Spiritual experiences vary by faith, culture, and the individual. But is neuroscience showing us that they're more similar than we think? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. Cambodians vote Sunday in an election that's been widely dismissed as a sham, one that will extend the 38-year rule of Hun Sen and set the stage for a dynastic succession to his son. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from Phnom Penh. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm driving in from the airport, and this is my first trip back pretty much since the pandemic. I used to come here a lot. And I have to say this place really seems to have changed in the last couple of years. There's a lot more economic activity here. On the flight in, I noticed a lot more new high-rise buildings on both sides of the river. Phnom Penh is clearly a vibrant city. What's not so vibrant is the state of Cambodia's democratic opposition. In February, Hun Sen's government shuttered one of the last independent media outlets, the Voice of Democracy, for allegedly slandering his son in one of its reports. And in May, the main opposition candlelight party was disqualified from running in Sunday's election, ostensibly for not filing the required documents, documents the party claimed had been seized by the police. They didn't lose the papers, Hun Sen said. They just didn't want to take part in the election because they knew they were going to lose, claiming the party was just trying to get the international community to come to their aid. This so-called election will be exactly like the one in 2018 after the regime arrested the opposition leader Kem Sokha, my father, and dissolved the only viable opposition party, the CNRP. It will be a sham process, completely without any opposition or competition at all. That's Monavicha Kem of the dissolved CNRP, the precursor to the Candlelight Party. In March, her father was convicted on treason charges widely condemned by the international community. Sentenced to 27 years in prison, he's serving his time for now under house arrest because of ill health. He's not allowed to speak. He's not allowed to communicate with anyone at all outside of immediate family members. And this house arrest situation is not clearly defined in the verdict, and it's actually not official, meaning that he could be sent back to prison at any day. None of this surprises Viraku, who heads the public policy group Future Forum. He says the goal in the run-up to the election is simple. The need to protect power and and legitimacy, and, and therefore that mandate could be then pass on to the son, the next person in line. Hun Sen argues, not without merit, that the once war-ravaged country has prospered during his time in office, with a GDP that's grown about 7% a year for the past several decades. But that economic growth has been uneven, and COVID didn't help. (laughs) Tourism and the garment industry are Cambodia's two biggest earners, But tourists like these in a waterfront hotel are still in short supply, and garment orders have yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. And remember all that construction I talked about on the way in? It's not all that it seems. This new bridge will connect to a new island built in the middle of the Mekong River. Some of the new high-rises are almost finished, adding to a glut all over the city. Faraku. Most of the construction is actually Chinese money. And how do they get these money is questionable. Much more of these money might not even be completely legal or legit or supported by Beijing. That's why we have a lot of empty finished buildings and a lot of unfinished buildings also in Sinoville and even in Phnom Penh. And that's going to be bad for the country. And there's a complete mismatch of, of built, empty buildings and people needing simple homes to live in. 
Alongside Phnom Penh's pristine riverfront, a worker trims the grass as people stroll the promenade. I ask a few people how they feel about Sunday's election. 65-year-old Hong Tani is selling quail and duck eggs to passers-by. Hun Sen is a king, and he supports us poor people, she says. So I'm grateful to him and will vote for him. A snack vendor nearby, who didn't want to give his name for fear of retribution, was far less charitable. I'll vote, he says, but to me, it's meaningless, and a lot of people think the same. We're supposed to be a democracy. Instead, he says, we're a one-party state that's becoming increasingly isolated internationally. But Hun Sen still has China, and is Beijing's closest ally in the region one he's reportedly allowed to expand and improve a Cambodian naval base in the south of the country, not far from the South China Sea. It's not clear if his son, Hun Manet, the heir apparent and a West Point graduate, might someday temper Cambodia's tilt toward Beijing or even allow more space to his political opponents. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Phnom Penh. As the nationwide strike on movie and TV production continues, big stars like Rachel McAdams, Kevin Bacon, and Bette Midler have been joining fellow actors and writers on the picket line. In Georgia, one of the top states for movie making, non-union workers are feeling the strike's impact too. Marlon Hyde from member station WABE in Atlanta has this report. On days when she works on set, Tyra Rogers gets up at the crack of dawn to get actors camera ready. She's a makeup artist who started working with film productions in Atlanta last fall. I wrapped my last film um, the beginning of June. Um, So it's been about four weeks, uh, which leads me to believe this is now going to be inconsistent. (laughs) It was good money, but she's not yet in a union. So she's working for a dentist's office and hopes that a deal to end the strike will come soon. Someone on some side is going to have to cave because everyone is hurting right now. Rogers is one of an estimated 20,000 Georgia film workers. 4,000 of them are SAG-AFTRA members, according to the union. Kate Fortmuller teaches entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia. She says with productions here mostly shut down, these non-union workers are hit the hardest. They can't necessarily wait out the strike to then continue trying to break in, so that might lead them to pick a new career, try something else. Georgia has become a major hub for film productions because it offers lucrative, unlimited tax credits. And state officials also tout the low unionization as a reason to film here. Lewis Toms is a carpenter and a background actor. He moved here from Florida for a chance to work in the film industry. It's been pretty dry over the last few weeks. You know, I'm in a few Facebook groups um, since I'm not in the union or anything like that, trying to find people for like indie work kind of stuff, looking for positions to be filled. And even places like that, you know, it's, I've noticed way more people asking for work than people seeking, um, seeking workers. Toms says he supports the strike because in the end, non-union members will benefit as well from a new contract. It's been interesting to see people are worried, but also at the same time, you know, standing with them. The actors and writers on strike are looking for improved streaming residuals, better wages, better working conditions, and an assurance that AI will not take their jobs. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The bottom line is this is a bill not designed to make the court stronger, more ethical, is a bill to destroy a conservative court. A Democratic proposal requiring the Supreme Court to issue a code of ethics for itself is facing harsh criticism from Senate Republicans. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, ahead on WBUR. Closing arguments are expected tomorrow in the trial against extremist Eamon Bundy. Idaho's largest hospital sued him for $7.5 million after armed protests he led prompted a major security response. And the U.S. Supreme Court used an obscure legal idea to justify delaying the redrawing of Alabama's congressional voting map in 2022. It allowed illegally drawn voting districts to be used. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. Could get some rain tomorrow. The weekend looks pretty nice, though. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. An NPR analysis of documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act are casting doubt on long-standing claims by the Pentagon that U.S. troops did not cause civilian casualties in the 2019 raid on ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been reporting on claims two Syrian civilians were killed and another badly wounded that night nearly four years ago. The military has maintained that aircraft fired on a van traveling near the Baghdadi compound because it showed hostile intent by not turning around after warning shots. It also says a pilot saw explosions from the van, indicating it might have carried weapons, and then the pilot fired a rocket at the Syrians as they fled. But an analysis of Pentagon documents obtained in an NPR lawsuit show barely two or three seconds would have passed between the warning shots and the direct hit. The survivor says he saw no warning, and defense experts say it sounds like a case of mistaken identity. The Pentagon documents show the military could never identify the cause of the explosions in the van. The Syrian survivor is disabled and cannot find work. He seeks compensation. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. It is beastly hot in Phoenix, Arizona, yet again today, just like it has been for the entire month of July. In fact, every day this month, the mercury there has topped 110 degrees, and the city hit that mark again today. Experts say the withering heat combined with the lack of cloud cover is turning some homes into air fryers. At the moment, there appears to be no end in sight for the hot weather, which is expected to continue through the weekend and beyond. Our reports some people may be trying to ration air conditioning to save money, something experts say could be life-threatening. 
President Biden used to stop in Philadelphia today to make another pitch for his economic agenda. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports during his visit, Biden reaffirmed his administration's commitment to clean energy, a key part of his re-election effort. President Biden spoke at the Philadelphia shipyard, where union workers are building a ship called the Acadia which will be used to complete offshore wind projects. It's going to place heavy rocks at the base of the offshore wind projects to stabilize them when they put these down. And it's going to protect, protect it against erosion. Be the first vessel of its kind that's made in America, American-owned, American-operated. Biden says the offshore wind farm and the Acadia are expected to help create hundreds of additional union jobs and boost clean energy manufacturing. The president also announced the first ever offshore wind farm in the Gulf of Mexico. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. American Airlines unveiled second quarter earnings numbers today, showing $1.3 billion in profits for the three months ending in June. Better than expected earnings numbers coming as more people are flying and fuel costs have come down. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 163 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. UMass Lowell is taking steps to reduce its workforce and shrink its campus as it faces an uncertain financial future. In a video to university staff, UMass Lowell Chancellor Julie Chen says that they are implementing a partial hiring freeze and will be sending out information on an incentive program for voluntary separation. The financial impact of these strategies will determine our next steps. There are some difficult moments ahead of us that are needed to put UMass Lowell on a track to flourish over the next decade. Chen says declining enrollment and higher employment costs is stressing the school's finances. The Registry of Motor Vehicles is seeing more demand for services since a law took effect that allows people in the state to get a driver's license regardless of their immigration status. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports the RMV is enlisting the help of third-party companies to keep up. RMV Registrar Colleen Ogilvy told the Department of Transportation's board the rollout of the Work and Family Mobility Act has been smooth so far. The RMV has increased staff and extended hours at seven locations since the law took effect July 1st. Ogilvy said the RMV has contracted AAA and the Central Mass Safety Council to help with road tests. Both of these organizations will use their own employees to deliver the road test services, but the consumer will actually schedule the road test through the RMV website and scheduling process. Information about the Work and Safety Mobility Act can be found at mass.gov WFMA. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A Needham police officer was convicted today on federal charges of conspiracy and securities fraud. The U.S. Attorney's Office says 60-year-old David Forte received kickbacks from inside information about plans by Wilmington-based analog devices to acquire a California semiconductor company. Forte received the information from his brother, an executive at Analog Devices, about the pending deal. He faces up to 40 years in prison and millions of dollars in fines. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The highs around 79. Right now, 78 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Elsa Chang in Washington. Today, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted along party lines to send to the Senate floor a bill that would require the Supreme Court to issue a code of ethics for itself. And while the idea of the Senate getting a bill through committee sounds fairly routine, the three-and-a-half-hour markup that it involved was not. Joining me now to talk about all of it is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Hey, Nina. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, so we know today's proceedings come while there's been a string of ethics revelations about various justices, including Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. And I take it the tone of the discussion today was not that friendly? (laughs) (laughs) You would be entirely correct about that. Um, In fairness, I should point out that the Judiciary Committee chairman, Dick Durbin, has been trying for 11 years to get the Supreme Court to write an ethics code for itself. And Republicans now see that as a threat to the conservative supermajority on the court. To be clear, while the court has for decades followed the financial disclosure provisions that apply to all federal judges, Mm -hmm. the justices are not bound by the other ethics provisions in federal law. For instance, the duty to recuse is up to individual justices. Right. Okay, so Nina, remind us, what is in this bill? Well, first, it would require the court to write an ethics code for itself based in part on the existing code for lower court judges. It would require the creation of a mechanism to investigate alleged violations of the code. It would require greater disclosure and transparency when a justice has a connection to a person or an entity or a group involved in a case. And it would require the justices to explain their recusal decisions to the public. Now, Republicans view these provisions as an attack on the conservative court by liberal Democrats. Here, for instance, is the ranking Republican on the committee, Lindsey Graham. This is a bill not designed to make the court stronger, more ethical. It is a bill to destroy a conservative court. It is a bill to create a situation where conservative judges can be disqualified by statute. It's a bill to rearrange the makeup of how the court governs itself. It's an assault on the court itself. Um, Now, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse replied that the bill before the committee is based on the existing judicial ethics law enacted by Congress. Please, let's not pretend that Congress can't make amendments to laws Congress has passed. Even the court has demonstrated it does not believe that canard. We are here because the highest court in the land has the lowest standard of ethics anywhere in the federal government. And that prompted this from Republican John Kennedy. This bill is dangerous, but it's unserious. This thing's dead as fried chicken on the Senate floor, and it's dead as fried chicken in the House. And maybe I'm naive, but I I believe in my heart of hearts that if you did have the votes and you could pass this bill, which we all know would destroy the United States Supreme Court as an institution, you wouldn't do it. Okay, I guess fried chicken is pretty dead. (laughs) So clearly the debate on this bill was highly spirited, to say the least. But why did it take more than three hours to get through committee? The Republicans came armed with 61 amendments. And I'm just going to give you a sampling. 
Senator Marsha Blackburn wanted a provision that would bar implementation of the bill until the person who leaked the abortion decision is identified and publicly disclosed. Senator John Cornyn's amendment was to put into the law the right to carry a gun for federal judges, though, as Senator Durbin noted, they already have that right now. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton wanted reporters who cover the court to certify under oath that they will not disclose any information about internal decision-making at the court. Durbin observed that just might be a problem for the First Amendment guarantee of a free press. And Senator Kennedy proposed an amendment to condemn what he said were the racist things said about Clarence Thomas. There was then a compromise, and the language was added to the bill to condemn racism against any justice. Now, in short, if the Democrats know that this bill is going nowhere, which they do, then I suppose you could say this is unserious because there is a filibuster after all, and they Mm -hmm. can't get past that. But the Republicans today wanted to talk about anything, absolutely anything other than judicial ethics. (laughs) That is NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you, Elsa. Closing arguments could come as soon as tomorrow in a civil trial against anti-government extremist Amon Bundy. Bundy has been a no-show in the case, which stems from armed protests he led outside a Boise, Idaho hospital last year. As NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, the hospital is suing Bundy for $7.5 million in damages. Car horns are blaring outside St. Luke's Hospital in Boise, where Ammon Bundy last year led armed protests against the hospitalization of one of his associates' infant grandkids, whose social workers say was malnourished. Idaho's largest health care provider says they will not be intimidated by bullies. Our top story tonight... Bundy has been defying a civil arrest warrant, and he remains a fixture online streaming videos in his cowboy hat from his home in rural Emmett, Idaho. A former candidate for governor who got 90,000 votes here, he attacks St. Luke's in a video this week that got 3,000 views. They are plotting and trying to get the courts to justify themselves in taking everything that we own. It's a cover-up to cover up basically their wickedness. The Boise Hospital went into lockdown and diverted emergency services. According to court documents, protesters holding wanted signs naming doctors tried to force their way in, even blocking ambulance entrances. When you go into these courts, and especially into Ada County courts, and I've had to learn this lesson the hard way, all you do is legitimize these people. It is just the latest legal drama for Bundy, who a jury actually acquitted in 2016 for leading an armed takeover of a wildlife refuge in Oregon. These days, you don't hear him talking about federal control of public land, though. Instead, his People's Rights Network spent the pandemic protesting public health orders, and in this case, pushing far-right conspiracy theories about child trafficking. They are, to some degree, terrorists in the way that they're acting. And then he turns around and makes himself like the martyr or the victim, uh, which is just ludicrous. Gary Rainey is a retired sheriff in Ada County, Idaho's most populous. He praises the hospital for going after Bundy's finances. Rainey's also been advising local law enforcement to wait things out and not immediately go in and serve the warrant. The other predicament is just keeping the community safe over there with all these, I'll use the technical term, yahoos. Um, that are over living on Bundy's property trying to protect him from who knows what. 
The trial, now in its ninth day, has offered a window into the dark world of far-right extremism, with intimidation and threats being directed at top officials even here in one of the most conservative states in the nation. A St. Luke's nurse practitioner choked back tears on the witness stand, saying she's still being doxxed online and called a pedophile. She's taking anxiety medications. The hospital's security director testified that he ordered a lockdown because he worried about a Pizzagate-style attack. He said Bundy's militia followers who ascribed to QAnon theories were close to taking control of the hospital in the middle of COVID. Bill Shaver is the former director of Idaho's Homeland Security Office. If we let this go and just turn our heads, then we are sending a terrible message that if you don't comply and there are no penalties associated with that, uh, you're going to encourage others to do the same. Bundy has lost the case because he didn't show up. Now the jury just has to determine how much he could pay. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Boise. Forecasters expect hotter-than-average temperatures for most of the U.S. in the coming months. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports that climate change plus El Nino are to blame. El Nino is the natural climate pattern that drives up global temperatures. It officially started in June. Now, federal forecasters say they expect it to persist into 2024. Matthew Rosencrantz is a meteorologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We do expect the El Nino to continue through at least the northern hemisphere winter. And there's a 90 percent chance or greater of that happening. So El Nino will stick around through next March. El Nino tends to mean hotter weather in the western part of the U.S. We're already seeing that. In Phoenix, temperatures are lingering above 110 degrees, and nearly 400 daily maximum temperature records fell in the southern U.S. in June and the first half of July, most of them in Texas. John Nielsen-Gammon directs NOAA's regional office for the south. El Paso is now at 34 consecutive days over 100 degrees and counting. And the heat isn't going to let up. Forecasters announced today that they expect above-average temperatures for the southern and western U.S. in the coming months. Here's the thing. The heat waves that already happened this summer actually make that future hot weather more likely, because the heat transforms the land itself. Here's how. Imagine sunlight hitting the land. If that land is moist, like wet soil, the energy from the sun causes that moisture to evaporate. But if there's not a lot of moisture, most of the energy will be absorbed by the land and make the land hotter. Think of the difference between the sun hitting a moist, grassy area versus a dry road. The road will get much hotter. The grassy area will stay cooler, but eventually it will dry out too and get hotter. So as things dry out, as you run out of water to evaporate, all of the energy is able to go into heating the ground, which then heats up the air above the ground. Hot land radiates that heat into the air like a hot blacktop. On top of that, once the moisture has dried up, there's less water available to make clouds, which would then fall as rain. So the dry soil stays dry. That's called a feedback loop. Hot, dry weather causes more hot, dry weather. That feedback's been triggered by the heat wave we had in June. And so now that things are dry, uh, they're more likely to stay dry and hot. Such feedback loops are a hallmark of human-caused climate change because the whole planet is heating up. There's a way out, though. If humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, temperatures will stop rising. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 79 degrees in Boston at 518. Coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Sound of Freedom is a surprise box office hit, but the Christian thriller is also fueling controversy over conspiracy theories and its depiction of human trafficking. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow was up about a half a percent at 35,225. NASDAQ was down 2% at 14,036. And the S&P 500 was down seven-tenths of a percent at 45.28. American Airlines reported a $1.3 billion profit for the second quarter, continuing the run of strong results from the nation's airlines. The results beat Wall Street expectations. American and other airlines are getting a boost from strong ticket sales as travel recovers from the pandemic, and they are being helped by a huge drop in the cost of jet fuel. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus, in Marshfield, July 21st to 22nd, and Waltham, July 27th to 30th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you might have missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. The Red Sox have the day off. They'll return to Fenway tomorrow night to take on the Mets in interleague play. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The highs around 79. Partly sunny Saturday. Chance of showers or thunderstorms possible. The highs around 82. Right now, 79 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. Kenya risks tumbling into a dark and dangerous abyss. That warning comes from two national newspapers, which issued a rare joint editorial today. The country's been hit by a wave of opposition-led protests over the cost of living and a rise in taxes. Michael Koloki reports from the capital, Nairobi. Kenya is in the grip of another wave of disruption and protest. What started out as a call from opposition leader Raila Odinga to protest against last year's election results has morphed into frequently violent demonstrations against the rise in food and fuel prices and a series of tax hikes and protest is often met with force from the police, tear gas and rubber bullets. Nearly 30 people have died in the last few weeks of violence. Kenya's president, William Ruto, has called for calm. Every part of Kenya have said we cannot sabotage our economy using violence and destruction of business and destruction of property. All of us must protect our country. Hatutaki Mandamano, we don't want protests, his supporters chant. Ruto came into office last year, promising to prioritize the poor. He styled himself as a hustler, someone who seeks to rise from a modest background. His message had mass appeal in a nation with high youth unemployment. 
But like many other countries, Kenya's economy is still struggling to recover in a post-pandemic world that has been hit by a rise in the cost of living as a result of the war in Ukraine. And people here are feeling the strain. It's not the fault of the youth that are on the streets, says Nairobi resident Alex Onyango. It's the frustrations of life. We don't have any employment. That's why we are finding ourselves in this situation. This week, opposition leader Odinga called for an additional three days of nationwide protests that have so far seen hundreds of people arrested. According to some estimates, Kenya is losing more than $20 million a day as a result of the disruption. Now, many in one of Africa's most stable and prosperous democracies are hoping for a quick end to the chaos and a long-term solution to its economic woes. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi, Kenya. When was the last time you moved around? Notice I did not say exercise. Most of us are well aware that working out, like going on a run, playing a sport, whatever it is, is good for your health. But it can be easy to overlook all the ways that we move during the rest of our day. As part of our series, Living Better, Will Stone reports on how these small movements can make a big difference. Doing the dishes, running up the stairs, bobbing your legs up and down. Welcome to NEAT, short for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It's the calories a person burns through their daily physical activity. All of the bits of activity, that is NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Dr. James Levine pioneered this research while at the Mayo Clinic and now heads up the nonprofit Foundation Ibsen. So the fact that it is so many things in part explains why it's so difficult to study, because how on earth do you measure everything? Levine has picked apart the energetic costs of NEAT using body sensors and other technology in tightly controlled experiments. He explains that sitting up relatively still, maybe on the computer, only burns about 5 to 7% more calories than if you were lying down at rest. Fidgeting a lot can bring that up a bit. Standing bumps that up to about 10%. And if I start to move around, let's say ironing or folding up clothes, I can move that to 15% more. If I start strolling at one, one and a half miles an hour, which is literally the speed a person sort of goes shopping at, your metabolic rate increases not 5% for sitting, not 10% for standing, 100%. This starts to give a sense of how seemingly trivial decisions to move accumulate over the course of the day. Day, and also how there can be enormous variation. Levine says neat levels can differ by up to 2,000 calories between people of the same size. And research underscores that computer-based societies could be getting a lot more neat. People who are living in agricultural communities are literally moving three times more than even lean or overweight people in North America just in the environments in which they live. The point is not that Americans should ditch their desk jobs and technology. It's that many of us might naturally be moving two to four hours more each day in a different setting. Clearly, your job, where you live, your free time, many things shape NEAT. But there's evidence that biology plays a role too. In the late 90s, Levine studied what happened when people who were lean consumed 1,000 extra calories a day for two months. Weight gain varied considerably. Changes in NEAT predicted that. People who have the capacity to burn off extra calories and remain thin are people who can switch on their NEAT. So what exactly is being switched on? Kathy Kotz at the University of Minnesota was studying how a specific compound in the brain called orexin influences feeding behavior in animals. But she found it had another effect. When we either 
give the animals more erexin or we stimulate their erexin neurons in the brain, it causes them to move more. Cott says differences in erexin help explain why certain animals in the same setting with the same food end up gaining weight while others don't. This extra physical activity parallels what we'd think of as neat. Getting up more often and moving around more often. Very similar to what our Apple Watches try to do, right? Every now and again, remind us, hey, you should stand up, you should move around. Erexin seems to do that kind of naturally. While these studies haven't been done on humans, Cott says it supports the idea that some people are predisposed to have higher NEAT. But she says this doesn't mean other people are destined to be sedentary. I think that it can be overcome just by being conscious and aware of the fact that you do need to move more. Tapping into this innate urge, these signals from our brain to move, is often in conflict with our technology-dominated lifestyles. Colleen Novak studies NEAT at Kent State University and tends to think about the differences between her grandparents. One of the grandparents lived on a farm and was constantly out doing things, digging out weeds. You just couldn't have them sit down. And then the other grandparent just preferred to chill and talk to us. She explains that more than half of the energy we burn goes toward keeping our body functioning. Digesting and metabolizing food accounts for about another 10%. That leaves the remaining 30, maybe 40% for all your activity. Much of that is NEAT, even for people who exercise regularly. Novak says while ramping up NEAT on its own won't necessarily lead to weight loss encompassing this need into your daily life that will nudge a person toward making it easier to maintain weight and not gain or not keep gaining. It's not just about weight. Dr. Levine points out being sedentary, even without obesity, is associated with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, joint problems, even mental health issues. He sees innumerable ways to inject more NEAT into our lives. Going to work, he doesn't hunt for the closest parking spot. He finds one farther away and walks 20 minutes. And then I walk back at the end of the day and take my car and go home. That's a 40-minute walk, 100 calories. He says you can turn a chair-bound meeting into a walking one. Instead of shopping online, go to the store where you have to stroll and pick things up. Even if you're watching TV, try pacing around during commercials. If you can immediately today develop an intention to convert some of your sitting time into walking time, all of a sudden, A will build to B, step one will lead to step two. Soon enough, he says, it'll actually become easier to find more minutes in your day to move, even just a little. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 79 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, musicologists Kerry O'Brien and William Robin tell the lesser-known story of minimalist music and its cultural influences in their new book on minimalism. That's ahead here on WBUR. And WBUR's Radio Boston would like your feedback on what you hear during the show each day. Tell us what you like and what you don't like and what else you listen to. Take the WBUR Radio Boston Survey at WBUR.org slash survey. That's WBUR.org slash survey. And thanks. Increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The high 79.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Brazilian soccer star Marta has won worldwide acclaim. She's not only talented, brilliant player, the best we've ever had, but also she has been such an important voice in the women's game. She's brought home just about every prize soccer offers except one, the queen of soccer's hunt for a World Cup trophy. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Philadelphia, President Biden toured a shipyard today where a steel-cutting ceremony for the Arcadia, a vessel that will help build offshore wind farms, was launched. Biden touted the many union jobs that will be created by the project as he courts organized labor at a time when some major unions are on strike or preparing to do so. Biden says unions are empowered to press for more benefits and better pay because of the strong job market his administration has helped produce. Jobs are about dignity. That's the American dream. That's Bidenomics and rooted in what always worked best for this country. Investing in America. But a wave of strikes could also impact the U.S. economy as Hollywood production has been shut down by striking writers and actors. And the United Auto Workers say they expect a possible walkout when their contract expires in mid-September. A new research study says a bill passed by Democrats last year could help slash carbon pollution that's making the planet hotter. But NPR's Michael Copley says the U.S. would still fall short of its long-term goal of reducing global warming. The U.S. is pumping billions of dollars into industries that can cut greenhouse gas emissions. The action is expected to make things like solar panels and electric cars cheaper. As a result, U.S. emissions could fall by between 29 percent and 42 percent by 2030, compared to levels about 20 years ago. That's according to the research firm Rhodium Group but the country needs to make more cuts to deliver on its promise under the Paris Climate Agreement. The pact aims to limit the rise in global temperatures to avoid catastrophic damage. Rhodium Group says the U.S. could still meet its pledge to cut emissions by about half this decade, but that would require bolder action by states and the federal government. Michael Copley, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A relief fund is being created to help Massachusetts farmers who were devastated by this month's flooding. The Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund is a partnership between the state and the United Way of Central Massachusetts. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. The Healy administration unveiled the fund at an East Hampton farm that had much of its crops destroyed by the flooding. State agriculture officials estimate more than 75 farms were damaged by last week's storms, with estimated crop losses of at least $15 million. The governor says farmers can't wait for federal aid. They need help now. The flooding resulted in tremendous devastation. Devastation to farms, devastation to the crops, devastation to to personnel and employees and payroll, devastation to infrastructure. Healy says the new relief fund is starting with $100,000 in private funds. People can contribute at unitedwaycm.org slash farmfund. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Fausto Menard. Meanwhile, members of the state's congressional delegation are calling on the U.S. Agriculture Secretary to move quickly to designate parts of western Massachusetts as disaster areas. A disaster declaration would give affected farmers better access to federal funds and loans for cleanup and repairs. UMass Boston and Mass General Brigham are expanding their recruitment program for nurses. Each organization is investing $10 million to increase the pipeline of nursing students by 400 over the next five years. Rosemary Sheehan is Chief of Human Resources at Mass General Brigham. She says UMass Boston is the most diverse university in New England, and this program helps students in underrepresented communities. The bulk of the money is actually tuition support to really help these students stay with the program and continue on to their dream of becoming a nurse. Sheehan says another goal is to increase the diversity of the nursing staff throughout the Mass General Brigham system. Red Sox have the day off tonight. They'll return to Fenway tomorrow night to take on the Mets in interleague play. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 66 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The highs near 79. Partly sunny on Saturday with a chance of showers with thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. The high around 82 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees on Sunday. The same goes for Monday and Tuesday. Sunny with high temps in the mid to upper 80s. It's 79 degrees in Boston at 535. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Elsa Chang in Washington. Try that in a small town. That is the title of a single that country music star Jason Aldean released back in May. And the lyrics, well, they're pointed. When you cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't. The video for that song, which was released on Friday, was pulled off the air by country music television after widespread criticism that scenes featured in it were deeply offensive, especially the setting where the video opens. We're going to talk more about that with Marcus K. Dowling, a country music reporter for the Tennessean. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Hey, okay, so we should be clear. The song has been out since May, and there was criticism already about the lyrics, but the criticism, it deeply intensified after release of the video. Can you just walk us through what happened to cause all of the backlash that we are seeing and hearing now? Well, in all things Jason Aldean, you have to go back to the idea that he's one of the more proudly conservative artists in mainstream country music currently. Aldean released the video with uh, a social media post. And it was kind of like saying, well, like, you know, this is my latest single, check it out. This is talking about being in a small town and my thoughts about kind of where we are as an American body politic. And the video has imaging of violence and perhaps racial tension. Then the tweets began to fire up yeah, because people knew potentially what he was talking about in relation to race. And the backdrop in the opening scene 
is a very famous courthouse. Right, where in a two-decade-long span, there were riots and lynching that occurred over racial background in that space. That caused things to ramp up even further because then the country music community at large, both left and right, began to weigh in and offer comments, positive, negative criticism, applause, and it just turned into a greater look at where country music is in general, split diametrically opposed down the middle. And how has Jason Aldean responded to all this so far? I saw a very long tweet. Right, he made a tweet, which made a statement in regards to maybe his unawareness and maybe his desire to also want to note that he's not a racist per se, which is something he had to say explicitly. And uh, I think that that was important to have because you need to have obviously some kind of awareness of the, the nature and tenor of the situation. Did CMT issue any statement about why it pulled the video off air? No, they made absolutely no statement. I think that they have no need to make a statement because potentially people can read into that, that there's something deeper that is at play. Things are said without having to say them at all. All right. So then do you think this incident in any way marks a turning point or or at least a moment of some deeper introspection inside this genre? I will say that since 2020 and the murder of George Floyd, that there has been a profound change towards greater accountability and awareness in country music in an unprecedented manner. Since this awareness, five African-American males have had number one singles since 2020. Mickey Guyton is a multiple-time Grammy-nominated country artist at this point. She's an African-American artist. So there's just a profound sense that change is possible. And there needs to be an awareness of what needs to occur for change to occur. Yeah. Marcus K. Dowling, country music reporter for The Tennessean, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Lawmakers in Alabama are tasked with coming up with new congressional voting districts for the state. That's after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Alabama's current map for likely weakening the power of black voters. But the high court did not block that illegal map's use in last year's midterm elections. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang explains the murky legal idea behind that decision. The idea is this. Federal courts should not make changes to voting rules close to an election to avoid confusing voters and election officials. People who follow this stuff know it as the Purcell Principle. And you are the Purcell of the Purcell Principle. Is that right? I guess so. (laughs) I am the Purcell that was named in that lawsuit, Purcell v. Gonzalez. That's Helen Purcell. She used to run elections in Arizona's Maricopa County. And back in 2006, a federal appeals court ordered a pause on Arizona's voter ID rules. At the time, the last day of voting in the general election was about five weeks away. And that's a busy time in election offices, no? It's a tremendously busy time. Purcell was worried a late change could vex voters and election officials. It's mind boggling. (laughs) When you're thinking, okay, how do I do this now? Because now the rules have been changed. So Purcell and other county officials put in an emergency request and the U.S. Supreme Court threw out the lower court's order. The justices warned that court orders about elections can confuse voters, especially those that come out close to an election. For Purcell, that ruling from the country's highest court was a big relief and a big deal. But I didn't think this was going to kind of take on a life of its own. Because it's been used a number of times, kind of quietly for a while. And there's an election law expert at UCLA who's been keeping track for years. 
In fact, Rick Hassan has been credited with coming up with the name for this legal idea. I think Purcell principle rolls off the tongue in a way, and so it, it's become a little catchy. It's also been quite murky. Hassan says there are a lot of open questions about the Supreme Court's thinking. What is too close to uh, election? The court has never defined how long that period is. But in the last few years, the court has seemed to apply the principle more broadly and for a longer period of time. Which brings us back to Alabama's congressional voting districts. Last year, the state's current map was struck down by a panel of three federal judges. They concluded that the map likely violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the power of black voters. At the time, the primary elections were months away, and the judges said there was plenty of time to draw a new map. But after Republican state lawmakers in Alabama sent an emergency request, the Supreme Court put a pause on that order, and that allowed the illegal map to be used for the midterms. Two of the court's conservative justices cited the Purcell principle. A vote delayed is a vote denied. Gilda Daniels is a former Justice Department official who now teaches at the University of Baltimore's law school. And she points out how the Supreme Court cited the Purcell principle in the Alabama case led to Georgia and Louisiana also using congressional maps last year that likely violated the Voting Rights Act. You can't get in a time machine now and go back and say, okay, you now have an additional district. Now vote under this fair and equitable map. The way Wilford Codrington III, an associate law professor at Brooklyn Law School, sees it, how the Supreme Court has used the Purcell principle sends a dangerous message. You get one election free, no matter how illegal your election rule might be. Codrington says how federal courts used the Purcell principle last year meant black voters made up the majority in fewer congressional districts than they should have. And those majority black districts are likely to vote for Democrats. That could have made all the difference. All the difference in a U.S. House of Representatives, where Republicans won one of the narrowest majorities in history. Anzi Wong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The film Sound of Freedom is this summer's surprise box office hit, raking in more than $85 million in ticket sales. As NPR's Shannon Bond reports, the movie is also being criticized as a vehicle for conspiracy theories. Sound of Freedom is a thriller about a former federal agent rescuing children from exploitation. Why are you doing it? Because God's children are not for sale. The film, based on a real-life, controversial anti-trafficking activist, is being heavily promoted in conservative media. It caught the wider world's eye when it earned almost as much money on its release day as the latest Indiana Jones movie. And a big part of its success is an appeal from its star, Jim Caviezel, who comes on screen at the end urging viewers to buy more tickets so other people can see it. Let's make this film a historic event and the start the end of child trafficking. Caviezel is drawing attention to the film in other ways. For years, he's been a prominent promoter of the false, violent QAnon conspiracy theory. Specifically, the claim that an international cabal of elites is abusing and killing children to extract a substance called adrenochrome. 
These wild claims have become deeply enmeshed with narratives about child trafficking, and Caviezel's pushing them on his press tour. Here's a recent exchange with former Trump advisor Steve Bannon about what's driving demand for children. Adrenochrome, uh, the whole adrenochrome empire, this is a big deal. Now, Sound of Freedom itself does not contain any references to adrenochrome or other conspiracy theories. It was actually filmed before the QAnon phenomenon started. Angel Studios, the film's distributor, publicly rejects any association with conspiracies. So do Tim Ballard, the former federal agent Caviezel's character is based on, and his organization, Operation Underground Railroad. They all declined or didn't respond to my interview requests. But recently, Ballard claimed adrenochrome harvesting is real. And his statements and Caviezel's have an impact, says Mike Rothschild, who wrote a book about QAnon. It's being marketed to QAnon believers. It's being embraced by this community, and its leading actor is a huge part of the QAnon community. Setting aside the QAnon cloud, the rescue story the film tells is also a lightning rod. Many of the missions Operation Underground Railroad describes are hard to verify or contain significant misrepresentations, according to reporting by Tim Marchman and Anna Merlin at Vice News. They're not whole cloth falsehoods but they reassemble things that are true or close to being true into stories that are just wildly and completely different from what actually happened. Operation Underground Railroad has denied Vice's findings. On screen, Sound of Freedom goes even further in fictionalizing Ballard's story, showing him single-handedly taking on a crime syndicate. The studio acknowledges taking, quote, creative liberties. But these popular depictions raise concerns among anti-trafficking experts. They say they offer an incomplete portrait of a real and urgent problem. Elizabeth Campbell is co-director of the University of Michigan's Human Trafficking Clinic. Because trafficking is so varied and does span so many populations, it really tests our brain to not not distill it down to some sort of, this is what a common victim of human trafficking looks like. And by doing that, I think we make actual victims of human trafficking more invisible and more vulnerable to exploitation. And she says they divert people's energy, resources, and policy proposals away from where they're most needed. Shannon Bond, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 80 degrees in Boston at 548. Coming up in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the lesser known story and cultural influence of minimalist music. And tomorrow morning on WBUR's Morning Edition, a new exhibition explores how Edward Hopper's wife helped the now iconic artist develop his artistic voice and brand after they met 100 years ago in Gloucester. Their story and preview of the exhibit tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting August Wilson's Fences, starring Ella Joyce, July 22nd through August 27th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. The Red Sox have the day off today. They'll return to Fenway tomorrow night to take on the Mets in interleague play. It'll have, uh, we'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 66 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of some showers. The high near 79. Partly sunny on Saturday, chance of showers and thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. The highs around 82 degrees. Again, right now it's 80 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. It's time for a Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. 
Here's Hannah Ali. The Cherry Robbers by Saray Walker is a gothic New England tale about a family of sisters, each cursed to die on their wedding night. The curse came true for each of Iris Chapel's five older sisters, and now Iris is determined to avoid their deadly fate. She changes her name and moves far away from home, but when a journalist investigating the Chapel girl's deaths reaches out, Iris is forced to reckon with her family's past. In The Cherry Robbers, Walker examines the horrors of love and running away from generational trauma. If you're in the mood for a little Halloween in July, The Cherry Robbers is a good pick for you. To get weekly book recommendations like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. On November 4th, 1964, an ensemble of musicians took the stage at the San Francisco Tape Music Center. The first thing you hear is this constant reiterating eighth notes played on the piano sees this pulse. William Robin is a musicologist at the University of Maryland. That night was the debut of an experimental composition. It was written by a young composer named Terry Riley, but it was the musicians who were in control of the performance. They could each choose from 53 musical phrases, all of them revolving around the note C, to play for as long or as short as they wanted, before moving on to the next one. It was called In C. It was unusually reviewed by the San Francisco Chronicle. A music critic went and saw it and said, like, this is music like none other on earth. Around the same time, similar experiments in avant-garde music were being performed in lofts in New York City. A new genre of music was emerging. Some people called it hypnotic. People who didn't like it called it needle-stuck-in-the-groove music. A lot of people called it trance music. Carrie O'Brien is another musicologist. She teaches at the Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. Once the music eventually was described as minimalist, the composers weren't a fan because it can have connotations of simplicity. So they rejected the title, but, you know, it stuck. Minimalism. By the end of the 60s, minimalism had not only solidified, it had produced a quartet of founding fathers credited with bringing the genre to life. Terry Riley, Steve Reich, Lamont Young, and Philip Glass. But there are limitations to a story that relies on the founding fathers. There were so many other folks creating minimalist music in this period, and that includes women and people of color and LGBTQ plus musicians. So O'Brien and Robin set out to write the lesser known story of minimalism. Their book called On Minimalism is out now. It begins with the artistic and cultural influences that set the stage for the early minimalists, including music that came from the other side of the world. They were very profoundly influenced by the first recordings of Indian music that were reaching the West at this time in the late 50s and early 60s. A number of things changed in the 1960s. The lifting of the Asian Immigration Act changed the ability of musicians from India to come to the U.S. So all of a sudden, musicians were able to study firsthand with gurus. You have these musicians who are sustaining a single note for hours on ends and trying to hear all of the complexity that comes out of just sustaining a single drone. There's also an important part of early minimalism 
is through modal jazz. There's a, a case to be made that Miles Davis was one of our first minimalists. You could also call John Coltrane one of our first minimalists. In pieces or albums like Africa Brass, tracks like India, he, like Raish and Riley, were significantly influenced by North Indian music, West African music, and incorporated those influences into their music, which resulted in an attraction to drones, an attraction to repetition. One of the reasons this music has endured is because it has this continued engagement with pop music and especially with rock music. So in the early 70s, the Who pay overt homage to minimalism in the opening of their song, Baba O'Reilly, which is named for Terry Riley. A few years later, you have Brian Eno and David Bowie collaborating on a series of albums that are very much influenced by the fact that they're listening to a ton of Steve Reich and Philip Glass in this period. There's also figures like the composer Pauline Oliveros. She was really drawn to drones that she found in the environment, like the droning of highway noise or like buzzing electricity. She once spent an entire year dedicated to droning on a single note in A on her accordion and using her voice. And she went so far as to say that like music wasn't necessarily the whole point. Music was a byproduct of her practice that was really a tuning of the mind and body. So another important figure in this period is Julius Eastman, whose work is undergoing this really important revival after it was largely neglected in the years around his early and untimely death. He was part of this next generation of composers who were engaging with minimalism in the 70s and 80s, who were thinking less about the kind of abstraction of the music, and instead engaging with it as a part of his identity, in this case, as a queer black man. One Piece Gay Gorilla. He, he explains in a pre-concert talk that he intended it the, the way that you talk about Afghani gorillas or PLO gorillas, people who are in a fight. And he said, you know, if he was called upon to be one, he would want to be a gay gorilla. You know, this is 10 years after Stonewall, on the kind of the cusp of the AIDS epidemic. So this piece, Gay Gorilla, it's minimalist in multiple ways. For one thing, it begins with just single notes on the piano, and it builds and builds over about 20 or 30 minutes. And through repetition and through accumulation, it offers this kind of spiritual and a kind of musical fortress. This music has this way of coming back again and again, and you look forward into the 1990s and there are British techno musicians who are playing and sampling Steve Reich at raves and in pop singles. And this continues into the 21st century where you have indie rock acts like Bon Iver and The National and Sufjan Stevens who are very strongly influenced by minimalism. You have composers in the classical world, someone like Nico Muley or Missy Mazzoli, who are bringing you know, the pulses that were developed in the 60s into orchestral music. But you also have a drone or doom metal band like Sun that is playing this like ecstatically dark drone music. 
So both the techniques and I think also the kind of loftier metaphysical ideas are ones that are continually appealing to musicians in many different genres. You know, music aside, composer names aside, there's a number of kind of lessons within minimalism, ways that minimalism really can change a listener, the ways that minimalism kind of cultivates your attention. There's a lot of different things that are kind of vying for our attention and the ability to like stay with something, stay with a drone, stay with a pattern, stay with yourself, I think is just like such a valuable thing that minimalist music can teach you. That was Kerry O'Brien and William Robin, musicologists and authors of the new book on minimalism. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The military has taken has not even taken basic steps to check their own assumptions from that night. An NPR investigation finds flaws in the Pentagon claim that civilians were not killed in a 2019 raid on the founder of ISIS. It's Thursday, July 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, NPR now has documents that reveal flaws in the Pentagon's claim. Also ahead, the biggest source of climate warming methane in the U.S. is animal agriculture. America's biggest cattle feedlot operator is funding new research with motives beyond reducing greenhouse gases. And we'll have a review of the historical thriller Oppenheimer. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A key Senate committee is pushing for tougher ethical standards for Supreme Court justices. The Senate Judiciary Committee measure coming in response to recent revelations about lavish gifts and donor-funded trips for some justices. Committee Chair Dick Durbin says such legislation is sorely needed. Unlike every other federal official, 
Supreme Court justices are not bound by a code of ethical conduct. They are the most powerful judges in America, and yet they are not required to follow even the most basic ethical standards. Over the measure which would call for more transparency about gifts to justices faces united opposition from Republicans, making it unlikely we'll make it through the full Senate. Proposed measure follows reports earlier this year of Justice Clarence Thomas taking luxury trips with a top GOP donor. Prosecutors in Russia are calling for an additional 20 years in prison for opposition leader Alexei Navalny. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, Navalny's latest trial has unfolded behind closed doors and out of the public eye. Judges moved the courtroom from Moscow to inside the very prison, where Navalny is already serving a nine-year sentence on fraud and embezzlement charges. There, prosecutors argued Navalny should spend decades more behind bars for alleged extremist activities. Navalny and his supporters dismissed the closed court as absurd and retribution from a Kremlin intent on keeping him out of Russian political life. In a released transcript of his final court statement, Navalny said he would continue to speak out against a corrupt regime, that it started a senseless war against its neighbor, he also vowed Russia would one day reclaim its future. A verdict is expected in early August. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. House lawmakers have overwhelmingly approved a five-year authorization bill that seeks to address some major issues that have snarled summer travel, provide more money to the FAA for hiring additional air traffic controllers. The bill also addresses a shortage of qualified pilots by upping the mandatory retirement age from the current 65 years to 67 years. Stocks ended the day mixed. As NPR's David Gurr reports, tech stocks will close lower. Tesla's stock ended the day down almost 10 percent after the carmaker reported quarterly earnings. Wall Street is worried about the company's margins. It's lowered vehicle prices recently and forecast lower production numbers in the months ahead. Netflix shares also tumbled. They closed 8.4 percent lower. The streaming service's revenue was less than Wall Street expected, although it added more than 5 million new subscribers in the second quarter. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson's stock climbed. Its shares were up 6 percent after the company noted demand for the medical devices it manufactures was stronger than forecast. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Looking at the numbers, the tech-heavy Nasdaq fell 294 points today. The S&P 500 closed down 30 points, where the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 163 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The chancellor of the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, is announcing a plan to cut staff and reorganize the school. In a video message to employees, Chancellor Julie Chen said, like other institutions of higher learning, UMass Lowell's financial future looks bleak. Slicing budgets thinner and thinner each year is not a sustainable solution against inflation, increased costs for employee salaries and benefits, the end of federal pandemic funds, and the shrinking number of high school graduates. Chen says major changes are necessary to keep the school viable. She's starting with a voluntary buyout program for employees. UMass Lowell is also putting on hold a new, uh, uh, putting a hold on new non-strategic hires. Chen also indicates the school is looking to eliminate and reduce its office footprint. A new state budget is three weeks overdue, and there is no indication of when lawmakers will come to an agreement. Both the House and Senate have adjourned for the weekend without striking a deal. The co-chairs of the committee trying to iron out a final budget are not saying what they are stuck on. The state is operating under a temporary budget that will expire at the end of the month. More than 100 farms and other organizations are getting $26 million in grants to help fight food insecurity in Massachusetts. 
The recipients are part of the state's Food Security Infrastructure Grant Program, which was started to fight food insecurity during the pandemic. Officials believe recent flooding in central and western Massachusetts could worsen the problem of food insecurity in the state. A Needham police officer faces decades in prison after being convicted today for insider trading. Federal prosecutors say 60-year-old David Forte received kickbacks for sharing information on Wilmington-based analog devices plans to acquire a California semiconductor company. Prosecutors say Forte's brother was an analog devices executive who told Forte about the pending deal. Forte will be sentenced in October. It's not safe to swim at more than 70 public beaches in Massachusetts. The State Department of Public Health has posted warning signs at most of them because of high bacteria levels. Swimming in them could cause illness. Just over half of the beaches are saltwater. The rest are freshwater ponds, lakes, and rivers. Sports, the Red Sox have the day off. They'll play the Mets tomorrow in Fenway in interleague play. Increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers. The high 79. Hardly sunny Saturday. Chance of some showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. The highs around 82. Right now, 80 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Elsa Chang in Washington. What really happened in Syria the night of October 26, 2019? Well, the U.S. military tells one version, a daring and successful U.S. raid against the founder of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The U.S. said its troops killed no civilians in that raid. This raid was impeccable. Then-President Donald Trump praised the operation. And here's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Our forces isolated the compound and protected all the non-combatants. Syrians tell another story about that night, that U.S. airstrikes actually did kill and maim civilians. NPR reported those claims back in 2019. The Pentagon reviewed the claims and rejected them. So we sued the Pentagon for a copy of its confidential review. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports there are flaws in the Pentagon's conclusions. And a warning, this report includes some graphic details. It was nighttime, and Barakat Ahmad Barakat says his two friends were giving him a ride home after work at an olive oil press. There was nothing suspicious at all. We kept moving normally. There was nothing ahead of us on the road. Suddenly, I felt something hit us. Airstrikes targeted their van. As it turned out, they were approaching the hideout of ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi just as U.S. forces were raiding it. My friend was wounded all over his body and fell over onto the dashboard. Do a Google image search of Baghdadi and car, and you'll see photos of their mangled van seen around the world. There's footage of uh, a white van that was riddled with bullets that was right next to the scene. A journalist asked about this in a press conference after the raid. Here's what General Kenneth McKenzie, who oversaw the operation, said. So the white van that you talk about was one of the vehicles that displayed hostile intent, came toward us, and it was destroyed. The men fled the van. Barakat says he carried his wounded friend across his chest and reached the side of the road when they were targeted with more airstrikes. 
I was so terrified that I didn't understand what exactly was striking us or what was happening. That's Barakat speaking this month at the very spot where this happened in 2019. AFP's Omar Hajkadur filmed him for NPR. In the airstrikes, Barakat's two friends were killed, and his right hand was blown off. Cell phone video that surfaced after the attack shows a destroyed van, two pockmarked bodies, and a severed hand. NPR learned about this account at the time of the raid and brought these claims to the Pentagon that Syrian civilians were hit in U.S. airstrikes. The Pentagon launched a confidential review of the incident and told us the airstrikes were necessary. It said the men were enemy combatants who threatened forces because they didn't stop their car when troops fired warning shots. I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to escape death. NPR sued the Pentagon to release its confidential review under the Freedom of Information Act, and the Pentagon released a redacted copy. We showed it to experts, including Larry Lewis from the federally funded Center for Naval Analyses. He's advised the military on how to reduce civilian casualties, and he thinks the military got it wrong here. When I read it, and this is based on reading literally thousands of these cases, it seems very familiar. There are civilians going about their daily lives, and then they suddenly encounter a military force unexpectedly. The report redacts what kind of aircraft carried out the airstrikes, but military officials have said attack helicopters were used in the operation. Here's the timeline, according to the Pentagon report. First, there were combatants who opened fire on U.S. troops, and the troops fired back. Then Barakat's van passed through that spot and drove in the direction of ground troops further down the road. The report says a U.S. aircraft fired warning shots about 50 feet in front of the van, but the van kept going, so the aircraft targeted it directly. This is the core of the Pentagon's claim. The van demonstrated hostile intent because it didn't stop or alter course following warning shots. But NPR's investigation found there was hardly any time to respond between the warning shots and the airstrike on the van. Here's how we reached that conclusion. The aerial photos in the report show that the aircraft struck the van in the same place it fired the warning shots. Looking at the photos, the van had only traveled about 50 feet, or maybe as much as 70. Barakat says they were going slowly. So say as an estimate, the van was traveling just 15 miles an hour. They only had two or three seconds before the van was hit. Lewis says all this would have been a blur to someone driving in the dark. Tragically, what happens too often is that the military does not effectively communicate what it really wants. They want the van to stop. But what do they use? They use lethal force. So you get this escalation based on misunderstandings. Here's another claim. The military report says after the airstrikes hit the van, the pilot thought there were explosions from the van, which could mean it was carrying explosives or weapons, and the pilot fired a rocket at the men as they fled. But the report says looking back, the Pentagon could not confirm what caused the explosions. There's no record the Pentagon contacted the airstrike survivor. Barakat says they never did. Larry Lewis again. Military forces see a vehicle or an individual, they believe it is hostile, it's a threat, but they're mistaken that it's actually civilian. And we, we call that misidentification. That's how I would characterize what, what is happening here. One of the Pentagon documents says something curious. 
It says, given the high visibility of this strike and allegation, it recommends the military provide a top-secret document that, quote, further addresses the characterization of the individuals killed and injured as unlawful enemy belligerents, if the existing intelligence so supports. I asked Lewis, what does the author mean by this? It does indicate kind of this question in the person that was writing this, like, you know, why are we so insistent that these people that we use force on, what is the real evidence that they were in fact combatants? that they weren't civilians that were caught in in the wrong place at the wrong time. We asked the Pentagon. It said there is no record officials ever compiled any top-secret document. So the Pentagon didn't provide the intelligence to support its own conclusion. We showed the Pentagon report to former Defense Department Special Counsel Ryan Goodman. There are several red flags that raise concerns. The analysis in these documents conflates or muddles an assessment of the decision-making at the time under the fog of war versus the post-strike analysis that they may have gotten it wrong. In other words, it's one thing to say that troops acted reasonably in the heat of the moment. They saw a van approaching, decided in a matter of seconds that it was hostile, and fired on it. But it's another thing for the Pentagon to look at this months later and still rely on the initial judgment troops made during the fog of war. One, that there were combatants in the area, even though the van did not open fire. And two, that the van ignored the Army's warning shots, even though we know those shots provided the van little time to react. In response to NPR's findings, U.S. Central Command spokesman Major John Moore said there was no formal investigation into the incident because the Pentagon found the allegations that U.S. troops killed civilians to be not credible, and it had no plans to reassess the allegations and, quote, nothing additional to offer. I brought all this to Barakat, whose hand was blown off in the strike. He's had surgery to remove shrapnel from his other hand. He says he can hold things again. But he cannot afford his $8 physical therapy sessions, and can't find work to provide enough food for his five young children. He's 39 now. He wants compensation. My future is destroyed. I have a family, kids. How is this their fault? Last year, the Defense Department introduced a new action plan to mitigate civilian casualties. And a U.S.-based nonprofit has taken up Barakat's case, the Zomia Center, which advocates for civilian victims of military strikes. Joanna Naples-Mitchell directs the group's redress program and wants the Defense Department to take a fresh look at this case. She's collected documentation showing what Barakat was doing in the area, receipts from his work at a nearby olive oil press. The big takeaway from this is that two men are dead, Barakat is severely disabled, the military owes him a lot more. They owe him a real explanation for what happened to him because the military has not even taken basic steps to check their own assumptions from that night. She's requesting Barakat's case be reopened. And last month, after NPR inquired with the Pentagon, she says the Pentagon told her it's looking into the request. So the official U.S. narrative about civilian casualties in the raid against the head of ISIS may not be case closed. Daniel Estrin, NPR News.
And you can see some of the Pentagon documents, photos of the survivor, and maps and video of the route he took. We'll post all of that tomorrow on NPR.org in English and Arabic. Twenty years ago, a long-shot horse shocked the thoroughbred racing world by winning two races of the sport's Triple Crown, and it's all because a group of friends in northern New York was bored. We were just sitting around having a couple of cocktails, as we're often doing, and the ideal came up to buy a horse, and from that day forward, our life has changed. The story of Funny Side on the next morning edition. Listen on the radio, online, or try asking your smart speaker to play your local NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown, 80 degrees in Boston at 619. Just ahead on All Things Considered, Wesleyan University is ending its practice of legacy admissions, which give preference to children of alumni. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow was up about a half a percent at 35.225. NASDAQ was down 2 percent at 14,036. And the S&P 500 was down 7 tenths of a percent at 45.28. In local business news, Governor Mara Healey says a lot of farms in western Massachusetts may not be eligible for federal disaster relief. Today, she announced the creation of a relief fund to help farmers whose crops were devastated by the extensive flooding. Healy says the state is still looking to Washington for help, but private donations can get to farmers faster. We've got at least 75 farms who you know, have incurred at least $15, $20 million worth of damage, and it's appropriate for people across Massachusetts to step up and find ways to support the people who feed our families. The state is partnering with the United Way to raise money. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more, careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Checking your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. The Red Sox have the day off today. They're returning from the West Coast. They'll return to Fenway tomorrow night to take on the Mets in interleague play. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chances of some showers. The highs will be around 79 degrees. Partly sunny on Saturday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. The highs around 82 degrees. 
Looks nice on Sunday. It'll be sunny and 85 degrees. The same goes for Monday and Tuesday. Sunny with high temps in the mid to upper 80s. It is 80 degrees in Boston at 621. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. The agriculture industry has generally been hostile towards addressing human-caused climate change. But now it's partnering with a research project in Colorado that's aimed at reining in methane, which is a type of climate warming pollution. KUNC's Ray Solomon reports. At first glance, the livestock pens at Colorado State University's AgNext program are a lot like your standard cattle feedlot. There are cows, plenty of mud underfoot, and of course, the ever-present stench. But this operation isn't just a feedlot. It's a scientific laboratory where researchers are learning about the greenhouse gases cows produce as they stand around digesting food. It's tricked out with millions of dollars of equipment, like this green feed contraption, a kind of high-tech gumball machine dispensing tasty cow treats. There's an animal in there right now. He's got his head stuck in the machine, and he's chowing down a little bit of a snack. Sarah Place is the animal sciences professor who oversees the work. Despite what you may have heard, most methane comes out of the cow's front end, not the rear. So each time an animal gets a snack, it's an opportunity for Place to get information. The air gets pulled from around the animal's face, and whatever they're respiring out goes directly into the machine, and we can get real-time methane emissions data from that. Climate experts warn we're running out of time to cut greenhouse gases, like the methane these cows exhale as they digest, which is what this research is all about. We want to find solutions that can help mitigate those emissions to cut the climate impact of beef. But so far, less than 2% of federal funding for research into climate mitigation in agriculture supports this type of work. So scientists have forged an unlikely partnership in their efforts to clean up the cattle industry. We can feed at one time about 900,000 head of cattle. Tom McDonald is with Five Rivers Cattle Feeding, the world's biggest feedlot operation. Cows come to them to get fattened up before slaughter. With 13 of those feedlots across six western states, Five Rivers is the picture of industrial animal agriculture. And yet, when the climate researchers came calling, they were interested. One of the biggest expenses for a research institution like that is just owning the cattle. And so we help them by providing cattle for their research, feed for their research. They also donated equipment to the tune of $600,000. The whole goal here is to learn what our greenhouse gas footprint is and then how can we improve it. But if anyone doubts the sincerity of the cattle industry's interest in climate action, McDonald points out the donations aren't entirely altruistic. They expect a great return on that investment. When you're in the cattle feeding business, after all, methane isn't just a greenhouse gas. Methane is energy. Methane emissions are calories lost to the atmosphere, calories that could stick to a cow's ribs and become beef. So if the company can cut down on the methane a cow exhales, they'll ultimately have more product to sell. The cattle feeding industry is about efficiency. From a cattle performance standpoint, we utilize the tools available to help the cattle grow faster, gain faster. McDonald calls it a win-win for the environment and industry. But for all the cooperation, the research is still very young. 
which Ben Lilliston says is a problem given the urgency of human-caused climate change. Speculative technologies, you know, it's not to say that they're not worth exploring, but would not rely on them as a real climate mitigation strategy. Lilliston is with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a think tank in the climate and ag space. And he says there's a more immediate solution. Raise fewer cows. Reducing the cattle herd is the clearest way to reduce actual emissions. That would mean less meat and dairy on the market. For researchers like Sarah Place, that's not workable. At the end of the day, we want to make sure we create practical solutions that can be adopted in the real world. After all, people like to eat beef. And it just might be easier to tinker with the inner workings of an animal's gut than it is to change the cravings of a hungry planet. For NPR News, I'm Ray Solomon. In his last film, Tenet, director Christopher Nolan told a story that shredded the laws of physics. His new biographical thriller, Oppenheimer, is about one of the makers of those laws, theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. Critic Bob Mandelo says the film is a monument to science and to arrogance. J. Robert Oppenheimer is often referred to as the father of the atomic bomb. It was not, from all accounts, an easy birth. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. The film introduces us to Oppenheimer the charismatic scientist heading the Manhattan Project in the mid-1940s, but also in time-bending sequences that pulse and shudder, sometimes in black and white, to Oppenheimer the troubled student, Oppenheimer the Jewish outsider, Oppenheimer the lover, the husband, the idealist who assumes he can save humanity, and the hotshot for whom the creation of a weapon that could destroy humanity is at first just a matter of logistics. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Los Alamos. Secret laboratory. New Mexico. Keep everyone there until it's done. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Placed in charge at Los Alamos, despite official concerns about his possible communist sympathies, Oppenheimer is the glue that holds his scientific team together, and actor Killian Murphy, who plays him with feverish intensity, is the glue that binds the film's narrative threads, his thoughts punctuated by writer-director Christopher Nolan with fiery particles and sinuous waveforms, as if his very ideas are skittering across the screen. Criticality, point of no return, massive explosive force. But this time, the chain reaction doesn't stop. It would ignite the atmosphere. This notion is what first sparked Nolan's interest in the story, the idea that scientists, unsure whether a nuclear explosion might set the atmosphere on fire, went ahead with the explosion. He lets Matt Damon's General Groves ponder that on the eve of the test they'd codenamed Trinity. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Nothing in our research over three years supports that conclusion, except it's the most remote possibility. How remote? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. That their big bang, and Nolan makes it very big, shooting with IMAX 65mm cameras, did not ignite the atmosphere doesn't make it any less horrifying. The film doesn't show the subsequent bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the weight of those world-altering tragedies sits like a shroud on its final third, which is consumed with Oppenheimer's tortured conscience and his fevered attempts to fend off reputational attacks and spark interest in disarmament talks as the world rushes headlong into the new Clear age. What do we know? One of our B-29s over the North Pacific has detected radiation. It's an atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but 
What were you guys doing at Los Alamos? Wasn't security tight? A prickly atomic energy commissioner, played by Robert Downey Jr., is among the many familiar faces Nolan enlists to bring historical figures to life. Emily Blunt, Kenneth Branagh, Rami Malek, Florence Pugh, Casey Affleck, Gary Oldman, each a vivid flash of lightning in a film that burns nuclear with the anguish of hindsight. They won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Well, we've used it. Will we ever understand it? Maybe a little in Nolan's majestic Oppenheimer. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org.